Hey everybody, welcome back to Noggin Notes. This is the Stuff Nose version. Uh, my name is Jake Wiskirchen. I'm the host and I'm a little bit under the weather, which is why my voice sounds like I've been practicing for old-time AM radio. Today's version of Noggin Notes is me interviewing two amazing human beings who work for the Volunteers of America. I speak with Pat Cashel, who runs the whole operation, and Austin Pollard, who does outreach, and they share their incredible stories of personal struggle with addiction and homelessness, and then how they're helping others with their addiction and homelessness through what they do with Volunteers of America. So, um, not gonna, I'm not gonna talk anymore. The, the podcast is a little over an hour of interview, and it's just amazing. I came out uh, a changed individual with. Uh, different interpretation of, of a lot of things. And, and I was really thankful for the opportunity to chat with these guys. And I, I see more conversations in the future. Um, I'm really excited about that. So this is brought to you by Zephyr Wellness, of course. It's uh, our company here in Reno and Sparks, Nevada. We do outpatient mental health counseling. Check out ZephyrWellness.org to find out what we do. Uh, I think we're really special. And I think you should too. Tell a friend. Also, we're sponsored by Audible. If you don't know Audible, Audible is uh, audiobooks for the most part. But they also have an expansive collection of other audio content. And right now, we've got a partnership with Audible where you can go to audibletrial.com slash notes and enroll in your free 30-day trial. You get a free audiobook with that trial. And even if you cancel, you get to keep the audiobook. So it's audibletrial.com slash notes. Enroll uh, helps us out. It helps you out because it feeds and enriches your noggin with some great audio content. And um, the world becomes a better place because we all get more learned. AudibleTrial.com slash Nogginuts. Thanks. I'm going to go take a SEPA call and uh, probably some DayQuil. And you can listen to the rest of the interview. Enjoy. Well, listening audience, we have a real treat this week. We got uh, two gentlemen. I can use gentlemen, right? You guys are gentle. Sounds about right. Yeah. Um, two fellows with me this week. Uh, Pat Cashell. Say hi, Pat. Hi. How's it going? Oh, I'm great. Thanks. <laughs> Good. Um, and uh, Austin Pollard. Hello. Hello. Uh, and they're both here from uh, the VOA uh, acronym for veter- uh, Sorry, Volunteers of America. Uh, there's veterans involved. You're Absolutely. Veterans. Um, but uh, Volunteers of America runs our local, uh, I guess you just term it a homeless shelter. We don't really like some of the vernacular, but it's what people can identify with here in the, the Reno area. And I'm going to stop talking for a little bit because I want these two guys to explain what it is that they do and how they do it. And then we'll get into some some other personal details and how they arrived at this juncture in their lives. And uh, But we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about homelessness as we know it. Go ahead, Pat. Introduce uh, yourself. Yeah, Pat Cashel. I'm the regional director from Volunteers of America, and so, um, and it is a homeless shelter. And uh, and actually, what Volunteers of America does here in our community is we oversee um, the shelters, and the shelters consist of um, a men's shelter, which uh, which on a nightly basis we uh, shelter 160 men. Um, 25 of those are vets. Um, we have a, a women's shelter, which is 50 individuals, 50 women. And then we have a family shelter, which um, is home to 109 individuals, which is made up of 27 families. Um, and the uh, kids there range. Uh, the other day I had a 
uh, two and a half week old baby in my arms um, oh all, my way gosh. Up to, all the way up to 17 years old so so and then um, so those are the three main shelters but then we have an overflow shelter which is about a mile off campus because um, when I first took over five years ago it was a seasonal shelter it was just a winter overflow shelter but as um, as we've grown as the homeless popul- population's grown it's um, we've had to extend that to 365 days a year so so there's another 150 individuals that we um that we bus over to this um to this warehouse where they were able to stay at night and get out of the elements so while we're talking numbers here i want to hover in this for a second um compare for me in the reno area and i know this fluctuates based on season but the number of total beds that we can house um and versus the number of individuals in need so, uh, so um, <clears throat> available beds. So let's see here. We have about, I'd say, close, just under four hundred beds available um, on a on a nightly basis. Our, our um, we're getting ready to do the point in time count, um, which we actually got and count everybody in the community. And I believe our homeless population last year was somewhere around fifteen hundred. But that's, um, you have to define, like, is that chronically homeless? I mean, if you just look at chronically homeless, then we only have a, we had a rough population of about 50 individuals. So, um, you know, it, it depends on what, how you define homelessness. How do, uh, how do we define how, how many definitions go, are there? Have, there's quite a few. You'd have to go look at that up under HUD. Mm. So HUD defines what, what chronically homeless is, what, um, you know, um, you're still homeless if you're couch surfing, if you're. Um, sometimes they're a homeless individual, still homeless if they're living in a motel, um, living in the backseat of their car. It doesn't, it, it doesn't just mean, um, you don't have a roof over your head. So, and HUD, so we're, de, you know, defining lingo and acronyms, yeah. uh, housing and urban development. That's the federal mm-hmm. uh, people who, who make these definitions. Yeah. And, and so, um, they kind of determine how the communities, how much money a community gets. And so that's what the point in time count is for. That's and gotta so. be tough to track. Well, it, well. So January thirty first at three four o'clock in the morning, we get a group of volunteers, police officers, and uh, and individuals from different groups in the community. We actually go out and we actually count people. Um, I, I don't know if they're doing it this year, but I know last year and the previous years they actually would fly the helicopter just to do the heat seeking, mm-hmm. just to find because people get pretty creative when they're building their camps. Um, some of the camps are in the middle of medians, in the middle of busy intersections, and you yeah. never know. Well, and I was thinking like the couch surfing people. You're not going to grab them because you no. don't know that they're on a couch. No, not. And so we go to the motels. We count all the motels. And so oh, wow. in the in the spreadsheet, we'll break it down to where they're staying. We'll count everybody in the shelters. Uh, we count everybody in camps. We count everybody. I mean, whoever we come across, and, and mm-hmm. uh, we do a, a quick survey and determine if they're homeless or not. That's pretty impressive. It is, and it brings about just uh probably a little bit over 1.6 million uh, is what we got last year from hud to combat uh homelessness i want to pause there because i want to come back to that and where the money goes and all that stuff the programming that austin um introduce yourself to the to the world well, i'm uh, austin pollard i'm the uh, outreach and security manager for the voa and primarily my team we we help direct people to the services they need um ensure the safety all the clients that come through the property and we assist all the shelters with anything that they need um i got given this opportunity by pat um they, they needed some help over there and uh, i've been kind of directing my 
life into giving back through my experiences of homelessness and drug use and everything. Um, you know, I, I've, there's a lot of people out there struggling and sometimes it just helps with having somebody who knows kind of a little bit of experience behind it. Yeah. I'm really, <clears throat> I really appreciate that you bring that up because, uh, oftentimes in the clinical world, we don't focus on the experiential comparisons. We, you know, as clinicians, it doesn't, it doesn't help, uh, frequently. It doesn't help when we say, uh, yeah, I've been where you are because invariably the, the client fires back. No, you haven't because <laughs> you know, you're not me. And so what we train our, our junior clinicians to do is go more toward the emotional experience, right? And we're validating emotions and teaching emotional functioning and psychological healing and all that stuff. Um, but when you're talking about getting access to resources and trying to convince people to, to enroll, it does help because you say, oh, I've, I've been there. I know what it's like. You have some experiential comparison because it, it validates where you're coming from for, for the individuals you're trying to help. Um, talk a little bit about your experiences because you, you've both been homeless. You've both recovered. You both are, uh, for, this is audio and nobody can see what you look like here. We'll put up <laughs> pictures. Um, but, um, you're both very, you know, well-adjusted, clean cut individuals who look, you know, bright in the eye and, uh, like you uh, have a, a very striking, I mean, I'm personally, I'm, I'm embarrassed to even be in this group because I, I don't, I am not good looking and, um, but yeah, it's 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 overwhelming. Uh, it's like it's like I'm facing Magnum from uh, from Zoolander <laughs> times two. No, but um, but, but, you, but I, I've, yeah. I've always been this handsome, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My my travels of uh, my past history involves meth addiction. Ten years of addiction to meth and. Yeah, and that's what well, that's where I was going with that, right? It's not so, really attractive. Yeah, we're and and I think it helps to not only bust up the myth of what a what a recovering drug user looks like uh, visually, um, but it also gives hope uh, to, that people who you know may wake up one day and look at themselves in the mirror and go, "My God, I can't I can't do this anymore. I'm going to die." Yeah. Uh, they they can look at you two and um, you're boom, about a generation apart. How old are you, Pat? I'm fifty two. Yeah, and Austin, you're 34. 34. Yeah, so, um, and both look younger than your stated age, which is really nice. So there, there's, you know, not only is recovery possible and all the, the mental stuff that goes along with it, finding peace and a job and purpose in life and family and all that stuff, but but really physical health too. Like uh, That would play a huge role. And so, so it's fun. some of the things you, I want to touch on is, um, uh, so I, during my meth addiction, it was kind of the explosion of like the internet era, like is when uh, surfing the net really, and so obviously I have tons of time on my hands as a as a meth addict, and would surf the internet and, and actually kind of self diagnose my meth addiction and, and what I had to look for as to as a future, and um, my future. If I listened to all the the BS on the internet and what everything I read, it was really dim mm-hmm. and, and uh, wasn't didn't give me much hope. That's back when the poster, the faces of meth, and yeah, yeah, and you look at that kind Super of negative. stuff, and you're like, and, and you think, is this this is the best it's going to get? And, yeah, and I might as well just continue down that path. And I don't want to say it, it definitely fueled it. Like, I mean, I didn't realize what they meant by when they said you're creating holes in your brains. I, I literally back then thought I was creating holes in my brain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was like this stuff was eating my brain. Um, but um, it's just killing brain cells and um, you know serotonin levels and stuff like that. And so. So, um, but what I love about my story is I've come out of that. And I can tell you, like, if you read the internet, when I read the internet back then, it was like, you'll never experience happiness again. You'll be, you have to medicate on antidepressants the rest of your life. And that's simply not true. None of that's true. It's just BS. Mm-hmm. And, uh, what really, uh, got me on the right path was exercise and fitness and, be, and becoming healthy. And once you see those smart change, small changes start coming in your life, 
it, it's motivating. It's like, God, what this is starting, this is working. It's yeah. like all that stuff I read is just BS. And it's like, it's not true. And I want people to know that like you can recover and you can recover mm-hmm. 120%. In fact, yeah. I, I, I embrace my addiction and um, it actually gave me the life I have today. And, and uh, it humbled me and it gave me an appreciation for life. And, and we can get into that too, because it help you understand, like my upbringing was, was really nice. <laughs> my dad owned casinos and, mm-hmm. and I uh, had a money tree in my backyard and, uh, and, um, <clears throat> so I didn't have any of those. I was never taught work ethic or like mm-hmm. everything was handed to me and, and, um, I didn't have an appreciate. I didn't know who my friends were. I didn't know if they were coming cause I had the boats and the toys and the house at the lake at an early age and um and so um i just uh, it, my addiction humbled me and, and brought me to my knees and it taught me a lot so do i recommend you go through my yeah. my road to to humble yourself absolutely not but uh, hopefully you'll listen to my stories and and actually learn from it and maybe not go down that path yeah a couple of things i want to touch on there it was one the uh the, the messaging right i think i think when we think about the war on drugs and i don't want to go down that path because that's a it's not working. We know that. Uh, it's just an incredible waste of resources. But um, I think the idea at the outset, if I understand it correctly, was the the messaging was supposed to be a deterrent. But it didn't do anything for the people who were already addicted. And then uh, all they see is bleak, you know, lack of opportunity. And, and uh, so if you don't if you don't get that messaging in front of the seven year old uh, and scare them out of experimentation, uh, what you do is you end up having an an inverse effect on people who are already down the path saying, well, nope, you're screwed. And I felt totally hopeless, totally hopeless. And it was just like, this is the best it's going to get. So I'll just, I'll just stick with that. I think, uh, one thing, you know, like everyone says it's a drug problem, but the the drugs aren't the problem. The thing is that they work. Right. Um, the problem is like, for me, it was stuff that was going on inside. Like uh, my younger life, I didn't really experience too much with it. But once I got out of the Marine Corps, alcohol, pain pills, everything started taking over. It's because I, I had some internal stuff that I have not coped with. Um, and that was my coping mechanism. That was my way to get through a day without feeling. And then it just progressively got worse and worse because that's all I knew. Um, as I started addressing those things, that's what pulled me out. So like one thing I, I've, I really feel strongly with, it's, it's not the drugs. It's, it's how we're dealing with ourselves. And, you know, what was really cool, Pat's talking about fitness and everything. Um, one thing that's helped pull me through it, because exercise, everything has been important to me, but it's also surrounding yourself um, around other people who will lift and inspire you. And I, I had the benefit of seeing Pat speak um, in one of my classes at UNR, um, Daniel Fred's class. And I met him. Um, I had also had coffee with Grant. And they, they're very big in their recovery, and they, they felt like fitness and just doing more for yourself, you know, and that, that's some things that help pull me out of it. Yeah. At what point, cause I'm, I'm the clinician here and I get to ask this question cause I'm the host. At what point did you engage in uh, formal counseling if you did? And what was the benefit there? Was it an add on? Was it a, was it a catalyst? Was it um, worthless? I mean, help share those experiences too. Cause I know there's a lot of people who just don't want to come into formal, you know, talk therapy cause there's all sorts of stigma about it. Um, for me, I mean, I started early in my recovery, um, and, and I even went before even addiction took place. My parents felt like I needed some counseling at an early age, so so I got it. But um, but to this day, I like I continue to see a counselor, um, and and I'll go little spurts. I'll go six months and then take four months off or something like that. But I can I think counseling is a huge benefit. 
um, to be able to go in and discuss uh, things with, I guess you'd call it a neutral party. And, um, and some, for me, it's just, um, I have a lot of like my, I have that negative brain sometimes and it's a self doubt and I just need to know I'm doing the right thing. And it's just nice to be able to run it by, like I said, a neutral party that can either tell you, no, you're this is not the right path mm-hmm. or, uh, cause I have that, uh, uh, I don't know where I heard that, but, um, maybe it was an AA or something, but first thought, worst thought. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, every now and then I just hold on to those thoughts before I get to it and I'll make it a counseling appointment just for that. Just go, I'm having these thoughts and I need some. That kind of flies in the face of test taking, uh, strategy, <laughs> right? Like go with your gut instinct. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. So, but, um, no, it's played a huge role, a huge role. Um, but that's just one, I mean, that's one there's yeah. like a whole like I like I, my recovery was so I hit it from every single angle I mean and that was through counseling exercise and fitness um going and forgiving myself I mean all kinds of other you know all kinds of you got to be willing to do wherever it takes to to stay well to get in recovery and stay in recovery a lot of vulnerability uh, oh yeah absolutely oh my god yeah huge vulnerability is huge Austin, uh, what's your experience with formal therapy? Now, when I got out of the Marine Corps, when I really started getting involved in, in therapy and counseling, and I, initially, um, I was very, um, what's the word, disappointed in the results. Um, every single person I saw had a different medication that they said would be the answer for it. And looking back, uh, they avoided the biggest issue that I had. I, I remember going in and saying, I have a, a huge pain pill problem. Um, and I was still able to get pain pills. And like, it was just, I was shuffled around. Hmm. Um, so never finding someone I was able to connect with, you know, and I was pushed on the group um, sessions and I didn't get a whole lot from it. Um and I feel one. I don't think I was ready to really get much from it, but I, I don't. I don't think I. I was also given the time or, or the, the energy, from uh, my therapist to actually see what was going on, you know. In the VA, I, I feel like a lot of the therapists are overwhelmed with their caseload, and they don't have the time to sit there and go and like you know. And seeing a therapist once a month isn't really going to be very beneficial. That is highly infrequent for somebody who's in the middle of a struggle. Uh, once a month is probably not enough. But you're right to that point about being overworked and whatnot. Um, it, you know, that matters. But also uh, philosophy matters, too. And a lot of us in our field are not trained uh, to, to think systemically and to uh, be vulnerable ourselves in front of our clients so that we can go into those dark places and know that we can help pull people out because we ourselves are oftentimes wounded healers and we haven't addressed our own baggage. Mm-hmm. And so we stay surface level and then uh, clients get frustrated, but you know, they, they keep coming because, well, I get a little relief, but you know, is it long lasting? No, you're just dealing with the symptoms, not the problem. And so I, I empathize with that. That's, that's tough. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it was until I got into my thirties when um, sitting down with a therapist actually started having some major effects and we started addressing some major issues that I never realized I had from early on in my childhood mm-hmm. like, like my mother leaving and kind of bouncing around through my family and let, I, I have an absolutely amazing loving family um, but I, I moved around a lot with them and just little things like that talking to a therapist who take the time to understand where I was coming from enlightened me on some issues that I was facing and um it allowed me to look deeper into myself and um, uh, Pat brought up, um, you know, forgiveness and like forgiving yourself and everything. But it's also, you know, I was able to forgive my mom. Um, I reached out to my mom and just let her know that I loved her and I forgave her and, and things like that. But 
I mean, the 30 years is a long time to come to that realization of things that are really holding you back, and I'm still growing from it. But I definitely love the opportunity with a therapist once it really starts hitting those topics. I like the endorsement. Thank you for endorsing my profession. (laughs) I know you a little bit, Austin. Um, I know that you're a a deeply spiritual person, uh, Jesus follower. Uh, How much of that played a role? Did did you have a, a spiritual following before? Is this a new thing? Did you refine it? And then Pat, same question. I, don't, I haven't talked to you about this, but I'm curious about the spiritual aspect of things. I mean, I came, I came from a family going to church with grandma and everything, but it wasn't, it wasn't fundamental to me. Um, when I was in the Marine Corps, I, I think I got baptized Catholic when uh, on Easter Sunday when I was in boot camp, and at that point it was just to get away from drill instructors for a little while. <laughs> um, but it, it honestly wasn't until. Um, I got into my 30s, and I, I, I realized that I had a lot missing on the inside. And um, going to church and sitting down with pastors and, and realizing that I, I had a gap that, for me, only Jesus could fill. Mm-hmm. And that, that that acceptance and love that I, I haven't experienced for uh, a lot of my life um, also just gave me that, that sense of comfort um, and... It, it, it kind of just expanded my life, and I mean, it, just in, in the the years that I, I've I've come into my faith, it's it, it's put me on a path that I, I would have never thought I'd have been in. Um, so yes, it, it is new, but it, it's ultimately changed my life. Hmm. Me? Any spiritualism? <laughs> yeah, there is. Um, so I mean, I was raised Catholic, went to Catholic school almost my whole life. Um, I no longer consider myself. Catholic. Um, I have issues with that. Um, but um, do I believe in a power greater than myself? Absolutely. Do I go to church? No. Um, I say no. I don't go to the conventional, like your, what you would think of the church. Um, my church happens um, usually on a hike or in the mountains mm-hmm. or outdoors um, in the wilderness or nature, as you would call it. Um, do I do I believe God helped me in my recovery? Absolutely. <clears throat> do I think he came down here and like walked me through it? No. I, I think we I think we give away our power too much to, um, I think God has opened up doors for me and shows me a way, but I think that, um, I, I, um, I, I put in that hard work and I had to wake up with myself every day. And, um, and I think, um, I think a lot of people, um, whether it be in AA or, or, um, in church, um, they give away their strength. And I, I, I think we're, um, I, I, like someone who's in recovery is a strong person. Like we, like we didn't just de- decide like one day we're going to change the color of our hair. Or, like we're going to put on a, like a new wardrobe or something like that. We've decided to change everything about ourselves, everything. And sometimes that is like getting rid of like really good friends or like even family members, um, move into a new city, um, uh, and, and just staying away from drugs and alcohol. And that takes an incredibly powerful person. And I think we ourselves need to take credit for it, but we also have to be thankful for those doors that were open from, open to us and guided through God or whatever your spiritual belief may be. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes complete sense. And I, I really appreciate that you kind of flirted with that uh, that controversial topic of uh, that, that is present in both the spiritual communities where you're, I guess uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but you're abdicating your own personal responsibility or your own free will, if you will, uh, to choose to act 
as well as is present in the 12 step communities where they say, you know, uh, you know, what I think it started probably 1935 or so, you know, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. And it becomes this identity thing. And it's like, I, I just, I tread lightly when I go into that realm because I know that some people really adhere to that philosophy, but as a practitioner, I can't embrace the idea that an inanimate object has ever has power over me. I mean, it's just, it's just a bottle with some yeah. fluid in it. Like I can't, I, you know, that yeah. that's absurd. To- yeah. And once uh, I think I hear what you're saying, but like, I can tell you like that, that small bag of meth uh, controlled every decision, mm-hmm. every like, and I think that's, uh, I think maybe I kind of rebel against things that try and control me nowadays, even relationships and girls. Yeah. And, uh, because that, that like it determined, like, do I get up in the morning? Do I go to bed at night? Am I going to have a good day or a bad day? Or are my emotions going to be leveled today? Um, am I, I going to participate in life today? Or am I going to sit in this drug infested hotel room I'm in? I mean, that bag of dope, it, it I mean, I, I hate to say it. I mean, I, 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 I like to consider myself strong person but it brought me to my knees back then yeah and uh and that's why i look at people that are in recovery and i'm like man um some of the strongest people i've ever met in my life Um, because i know what it's like to break that relationship with a bag of dope and it's um man words can't even describe what that was like and 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 finally making that decision to go away and and, uh, allow my parents and my family to help me and get to rehab was I mean, it took a lot, a lot. How many times did you guys quit before you actually quit? For me, it was, it was like once. I never wanted to quit. And finally, something that they, you know, like they say, that moment, that little moment of clarity that probably lasted 30 seconds. And my dad got me at the right time and he happened to be sitting in a room and I was like, I'll go to rehab. Wow. And he was like, let's go. And it's and it's stuck. You didn't change your mind on the car ride, and then just oh, lip service your. Oh, no, oh. Did, like, oh, you did. Okay, yeah, all the way to the like, even like, because he said, "Okay, I'll be here on." Uh, we're going on Tuesday, and it was like mm-hmm. Sunday, and I was like, "Okay." He's like, "How are we gonna get there?" And I'm like, "Oh, let's fly." And then he showed up, and he's all ready to go to the airport, and I'm like, "I'm not flying." And he uh. was just like what? And I was like, "Let's drive." And then it just went back and forth. So I mean, yeah, that was the first real attempt. But to get me there, it was just, it was my dad wanted to wring my neck. Yeah, it was a struggle. That was it was about a five day ordeal of traveling to Southern California to get me into rehab. And relatives or friends of people who are struggling with this stuff uh, hear that very clearly. That if you're trying to help, keep trying to help. Oh, don't give up. Yeah. No way. And my dad, even over 10 years of meth addiction, um, the, um, he never gave up on me. He wanted to wring my neck half the time, but he, uh, he never, ever gave up on me. And I'm not saying that, you know, do what my dad enabled me a lot, <clears throat> uh, gave me a house eventually when my dad was actually the mayor of Reno for 12 years. And I was living on the street and his, um, his campaign advisor, political advisor said, we got to get your son off the street. So, um, it's, it's bad optics, apparently. To... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're math addicted. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> and high-speed car chases. So they did, and, and he rented me a house and, and uh, gave me a place to live and, and just said, you're an embarrassment to the family. Just don't come out. And um, he left me a couch and a bed and an Xbox and a TV, and so there you go. And, wow. Um, so, um, which wasn't a good thing. was not a good thing, but... Uh, um, no, my dad is, is my hero, and uh, without him, I wouldn't be here today. So, 
and, and the rest of my family, and not only just the rest of my family, because of my dad um, being the mayor, right when I got clean, I was able to, something came to me, another moment of clarity, and I called my dad, and I was like, I got a great idea, and he was like, you haven't had a great idea in like 20 years, so I'm afraid of what you made, and I was, he was like, come he was like, I was like, I want to share my story in public, because I went through meth mm. addiction for 10 years, and and if I don't start helping people with it, um, that, that big 10 years, and I probably give myself too much credit, but... I equate like my tenure experience is like someone going to medical school. Yeah, <laughs> they, yeah, yeah. And they come out and have totally. all this crazy knowledge of the human body and how to save lives and change lives. And instead of going into the field of medicine, they go get a job at 7 Eleven. Mm. And they're full of all this information. And so I went through this crazy 10 years of life of living on the streets and meth addiction and, and uh, mental health issues and addiction issues and being homeless. and and I got clean and sober and, and I came out and I was like, what do I do with all this? And something said, you got to, to make those 10 years, uh, give them some kind of purpose, start sharing your story. And I was like, and what better way to do it than through my dad, who's the mayor of the city. And so I, he said, well, come down and let's talk about it. And, um, and I showed up at city hall the next day and he was standing at the door laughing and, and, uh, it speaks volumes about my dad and how much he cared about me as, um, and other people, um, I was like, what's so funny is like, you said you want to share your story, right? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, I called a press conference. Wow, wow. And I walked into City Hall. It's just a sea of cameras and reporters and my mom and my whole family. Oh, wow. And um, and we all, as a family, shared my story. And it, it changed all of our lives. And it, it, it gave me purpose, not just for the future, but it also gave me purpose for those 10 years of addiction of living, in, you know, living that life. And seeing that um, through my experience I've been able to help people. Two questions before I ask Austin how many times he quit. Um, one, how long after you were clean and sober did you have that press conference? And two, did you cry? <laughs> I cried everything. So, yes, I cried. Um, if you ever come watch any of my public speeches, you'll see that. Um, so I would any, cry. Anytime that uh, I, uh, my mom and dad... Um, will come and sit in the audience. I, it, I can't help it. I mean, yeah. it's just like um, uh, anytime I talk about the homeless issues and, uh, and the thing, I'm, I'm surprised I haven't cried yet in this uh, podcast. Um, but um, um, yeah, no, all the time I'm a very emotional per person, and um, that is all really that whole experience is close to my heart and helping other people is close to my heart too. And, and realizing the struggles that people go through, not just through drug addiction, but I had to come to, I had to come to terms with the fact that I was mentally ill also. And I had to actually voice that and publicize that. And, and so I see people, I don't see people just struggling with addiction, but also mental health issues and, mm -hmm. and that whole thing. So, um, and it was probably, I want to say, it's been 15 years now, so I'm, I'm guessing it was within the, I'll say the first six months of being clean. Oh, probably, real recent then. Probably sooner. I'd say in the first few months. That's got to help with to accountability. Me. You know, you're, you're freshly clean sober and you announced to the world that you're freshly oh, clean no, sober. Oh, huge. I, the, I love this community. So, yeah. like, I announced it and it was all over the news and they, I started doing interviews after that and public speaking after that and... Um, and it was crazy. Um, I'd be sitting in a bar watching a football game with a bunch of friends, and, and total strangers would come up to me and make sure I was okay uh, and, and holding me accountable. Like, that's just water, right? Yeah. And some of them would actually pull me out of the bar, like, let's oh, go. Wow. There's a coffee shop. And wow. so I love Reno, Nevada because um, um, they embrace me, and it, it continues today. Um, 
through my um, recovery and just support and just um, this Reno is an amazing place. Yeah, it is. Uh, and uh, there was I, I haven't come across anybody um, that's ever judged me that, that's like said I'm not deserving of a good life because I was a meth addict. Yeah, that's awesome. So cool stuff. How many times did you quit before you actually quit? <laughs> um, maybe in my mind, hundreds of times. Uh, I, don't, I don't think you get, when you get to that dark, darkest level of drug use, like where you're sneaking into hotels just so you can get a breakfast and living on the streets. Well, I thought that was just college. No, oh. no, no, no. That's, that's it. Like, I mean, my, my life turned into like, I uh, burned every bridge. You know, I, I, I started hating myself. So the first time. I really wanted to quit. My way of quitting was driving myself out to the middle of nowhere and trying to intentionally overdose on heroin. Hmm. Um, it didn't work, obviously, um, just because I had too much meth in my system. My heart didn't want to wow. stop. So that that was not metaphorical. That no. was you literally tried that method. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Fe- February 2014. Um, I, I I took a look at my life and the person that I was because like you get to a point so deep in your drug addiction, you're like sitting inside this house. And who you are is outside that window, and you can see it. And who I was is somebody who's athletic, playing sports, hiking, hanging out with family, doing all that. And I'm sitting in here in a little chair by myself, not wanting to talk to anybody because, like, I, I didn't want to share my drugs. I didn't want to be around anybody. Um, and, like, at this point, my, my dad barely even talked to me. And, like, my, my, my dad, um, you know, he, he's one of those guys, if I ever got locked up, he's like, leave him in there. Um very hard, but very loving. Um, I don't think ever in my life when I, I called him did he not answer. He maybe, maybe yelled at me, but he was always there. And he was at his end. Um, my, my other family um, couldn't look at me without crying anymore. I wasn't, wasn't allowed to go to my aunt's and grandma's house anymore because of the person I became. Um, so I, I hit that point where I'm driving myself to the middle of nowhere and just ending it. It seemed, it seemed like the, the best idea. And um, looking back, I, I'm... I'm beyond grateful that that, that didn't work. Um, I actually ended up in rehab in Fallon, Nevada, later that year, December of 2014. New Frontier? Yes. Yeah. Shout out to New Frontier. Yeah. <laughs> Successful I, case sitting right in front of me. I, I love them. Um, and I, they, they, they legitimately saved my life. So um, so when, when I drove myself in the middle of nowhere, tried to OD, that was the first time I wanted to stop. Uh, the next time, uh, I was in Las Vegas because I moved to Vegas thinking that's where I can get clean because that's where my dad was. And it, it didn't work out very well. Vegas is not a great place to make good decisions. And uh, I went to my dad and I just I, I just put myself down and I, I, I needed help. Took me to the VA. Um, I wound up actually getting arrested while in the VA in the psych ward. Um, I got a disorderly That's conduct. hard to do. It, it's very hard to do. I, I've never met anybody else who's been arrested in a psych ward. So, um, I think we're trying to combat those kinds of things, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> Not it, judging the mentally ill. And so he, here's the addict mind. When, when, when that's going on, when you're in handcuffs, because like you're like, wait, I, I, went, I came here to get help. Now I'm in mm-hmm. handcuffs, and I'm on my way um, to jail. Like, that's when, you, you know, it's everybody else's the problem. And I'm like, man, everybody sucks. Life sucks. I hate this. I can't even get help. Well, that charge is how I got the opportunity to go to New Frontier, um, which saved my life. Ah. You know, so um, I, I've had the opportunity to go and speak and talk to people. And like, you know, a lot, there's a lot of people feel the same way. I got arrested. My life is over. Um, me getting arrested is probably the best thing ever happened to me. Um, and then I spent 83 days there. And I'll, I'll be honest, that first month was terribly hard. I've done a lot of hard stuff. I mean, I, 
two-a-days for football growing up in Yuma, Arizona, where it's 100 degrees, the Marine Corps. <laughs> like, there, there, there's a lot of hard stuff that I've done. I don't know how sitting in a, a roof place where I got meals, I had a bed, um, and all I had to do was show up for group was, like, literally the hardest thing. But psychologically, I just, my mind was all over the place. I should have been kicked out. I punched the hole through a wall there. Um, I swallowed a goldfish. And they... Again, this sounds like college. I, <laughs> I don't know what's... <laughs> but I did get kicked out. And right before I got kicked out, the director, uh, I don't know if she's still there. Um, her name is Lana. She overturned that. She, she, she gave me one more chance. Um, I think I was on, on day 26. And then told you to stay away from the goldfish. Yeah, I wasn't allowed. They put a sign that you can't drink the goldfish, and it's still there. <laughs> so it's a true story. Um, but anyways, that, that 26th day where I should have been kicked out, and I didn't, turned into 83 days. Um, and then I made northern Nevada my home. And um, like Pat was saying, this place is amazing. Um, like just the community that we have here is so accepting and so uplifting and the opportunities for people is just great. Like if you, you can get to where you're ready to drive yourself in the middle of nowhere and kill yourself and then get to the point where I, I feel like I am with an amazing family. I got amazing coworkers, friends. Like I, I'm super grateful. So he drove us here in his new truck. Yeah. 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 Yep. It's funny. Cause I got, I actually got kicked out of rehab after four days. <laughs> and, uh, but those four days, um, it, so I was in my addiction, I was stuck in Reno for almost 12 years and, and I grew up traveling and I went to school in Switzerland and all these wonderful things. And you think you have a perfect life. Why would you ever choose addiction? But you know, mental health issues and stuff like that. Um, so anyway, but, um, I went and, uh, uh, to Southern California and, and those four days uh, just leaving Reno and actually going and seeing the ocean and people enjoying themselves and and for me to get to uh, my group I had to walk from my room and I had to pass by a bar and it was an open air bar with no windows and it was warm and, and but I heard as I walked by it wasn't the drinking that caught my eye it was all the laughter and and the people enjoying themselves and having fun and and, I was, and, and, and then I'd see someone in there with their family all walking to the beach and laughing and the, I felt sunshine on my face and I don't want to get all like spiritually spiritual and like flower child on you but it was like just seeing the colors of trees again and because meth addiction is so dark and everything happens at night um, to see those things it was like those four days changed my life and I never relapsed from that point on. And, uh, but you got kicked out. I did get kicked out. What'd you do? We got to know. <laughs> um, I actually, um, it was on the weekend, and I actually, um, like uh, Austin said, your mind is just, I was crazy. Ten years mm-hmm. of meth addiction, all of a sudden, four days clean with no drugs. I was, my mind was going out of control. I was probably should have been locked up with Austin. We <laughs> <laughs> could have shared a room. <laughs> um, and so I wandered down the beach for probably three hours. And um, when I came back, they asked where I was, and I told them, and they said, well, you need to come drug test. And so I went drug test. Well, 10 years of addiction, I was still urinating mm-hmm. drugs. And they said I relapsed, and, and they were going to put oh, these conditions on me. And, and, and being the crazy individual I was at that point, um, I, I, I did realize I had four days clean. It was the first time in four days, and I refused to let anyone take those four days away from me. And that's just how I always treat my recovery is like I, I, I go to the jails. I'm like, I dare any yeah. of you guys in here to try and take my recovery because it's not going to go well. Yeah. And uh, and that's the way it was. And I had that mindset right away. Like, man, I just I'm celebrating four days and you guys are like and I got in a huge fight and I probably said things I probably shouldn't have said. And and they helped my uh, I, I actually I don't even know if they really kicked me out. I just was like, I'm not I, I left. And, uh, and that was it. And that was a, that was what changed my life. And I came home and um 
reached out to a, uh, a really good friend of mine um, who was a big athlete in the area, and um, uh, and I'll even tell you his, his name is Franz Weber, and um, he kind of built a little recovery center for me. It was all based on hiking and nature, and we walked up to a little place in Collin Ranch called Cross Peak, and he mm-hmm. built a little cross up there for uh, some family members who had passed away and he put a little metal box up there with a book in it. Been there. And uh, have you? Well, yeah. now you know who the founder uh, yeah, is. Yeah, <laughs> did Franz not know that. the founder yeah. and I actually helped him carry a bunch of stuff up there. <laughs> so, but it's a really um, spiritual place for me and that's kind of when Austin and I go there, it's kind of like going to church for me. Mm-hmm. And um, so, <clears throat> for the first year of my recovery, I walked up there at least 300 times. Sometimes three times in a day. And, wow. Um, and just cleared my head and it was really cool because I was one of those weird guys that actually gained weight from using meth and was super out of shape and weighed 230 pounds and and as I and I just started th- seeing things change like my mental uh, like negativity started to change and I started seeing my body change and my physical appearance change and I started getting healthy and I started eating healthy and so that place is like magical and I, I went up there literally every other day for a year and, uh, and then start riding bikes and doing all kinds of stuff. And so that's how I. That's I, pretty powerful. Yeah, so and, yeah I, the, the audience can see me. I was shaking my head when you were talking about getting kicked out of the, the rehab because I, I worked for a rehab facility here for a little while. And one of the philosophies was, um, you know, people go away on a weekend or a pass or something. And then they come back and they and they they pee dirty or whatever it's like we kick them out of the program it's like well no they're addicted you have to love them through it and i was like oh no if you're not like fully sober and compliant then you're you're disqualified from help like what this this is nonsensical this is inverted thinking and i deal with that a lot at the shelter someone comes in and they're um, being violent or having mental health episode or or you know not wanting to follow the rules and and there's individuals that think that they should be kicked out and it's it's like no that's not what we do we yeah we you know or they come in with a, a bottle of beer and they have a bottle of beer in the shelter and everyone's like kick them out and i'm like no, no we kick out the no. beer yeah. yeah no that's not what we do around here so let's uh, talk about this shelter uh so uh, and i want to i want you guys to share your homelessness experiences um and then tell what you're doing to help change that here. And eventually I want to, you know, at least touch on the, the politics and policy and funding aspect of things too, because this is, this is prevalent in every community. So, um, so I can tell you every night here in Reno Nevada at the shelters, we're full. And as I said earlier, we probably have room for just under 400 individuals. And I can tell you, um, through these past storms that we've had in town, we probably had 600 individuals at the shelter. So we're Mm -hmm. maxed out. Um, um, I have an incredible staff of probably 75 employees who, um, nobody's getting rich off this line of work. Um, and, uh, and so I just want to make sure everyone realizes that the employees of volunteers of America and the people running those shelters in my eyes are, um, I consider them all angels. I can't figure out why they'd be doing this type of work for the pay that they get and for what they have to put up with, um, you know, on, on a daily basis is, uh, is, um, I don't know. The, yeah, sainthood would be a would be a, a good thing, I think. Except so. you're not Catholic anymore, so yeah, we can't yeah, do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but we're located down at three three five Record Street, and um, we are a low barrier shelter, which means uh, we do not turn away anybody. 
um, regardless of, I mean, they, they can come in drunk, they can come in with a needle hanging out of their arm. I'm, I'm not going to turn away anybody. Uh, um, everybody deserves to have shelter. Do you have medical services there? So if somebody's, um, like, bleeding out their ears, like, I mean. So we do, um, uh, but it's not operated through Volunteers of America. It's called Community Health Alliance. Mm. And so they're located on the second floor of the shelters, and that's totally open to everybody. So um, so if someone does come in or get sick at the shelter, we can send them over there. We've had Patrick Rogers on the show before. Oh, yeah. He's Community Health Alliance is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. They do amazing work. And they just recently in the last year started dentistry. Yep. And I can tell you, I know what a haircut does for somebody. I know what a shower does for somebody. Um, when someone gets a new set of teeth, it's, I mean, all these, everything that I just mentioned, haircuts, new tennis shoes, a shower, um, brushing their teeth, they're all life-changing events for someone living on the streets. Yeah. Um, but when you get a new set of teeth, holy mackerel. And yeah. It's like, mm-hmm. I had a girl that works for us now and she was so, she was struggling so bad <clears throat> and she would come to my office every day and we'd, I'd get her into rehab and then she'd disappear for two months and then come back and every time she'd lose a tooth and her mm. teeth were just, and, and eventually, uh, um, she went upstairs and, and they pulled every tooth in her head and she wouldn't, she was embarrassed and wouldn't, she quit coming to see me and. But little did I know that she was actually working on her recovery during that period of time. She just wasn't too embarrassed to come and, and uh, let me see that all of her teeth were pulled. And then, um, But I, I knew that her teeth were rotten out of her head. And then all of a sudden, probably six months later, she walked in my office just ear-to-ear grin and this whole uh-huh. new set of teeth. And from that point forward, she... Um, she got a house. She got a job. She works for us at the volunteer. She's probably one of my best employees that I have at, at Volunteers in America. That's and, amazing. And it was it wasn't just recovery that did it, but it was that work that Community Health Alliance did upstairs. Yeah, that really was a catalyst for her to get back out in the world. Partnerships are great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. What's so, uh, so people understand? Like, um, I think we envision homelessness. Like, because I really want to get into your your own personal stories. We envision homelessness in whatever way we envision it, right? So, um, f- frequently there's there's encampments, there's there's tarps and tents and uh, you know cardboard boxes and that sort of thing. Um, what is your guys' experience, and how is it uh, similar or dissimilar from what you encounter more frequently in your lines of work? Um, so, I mean, my own experience compared to what I see at the shelters, uh, I don't want really, obviously I was homeless, um, for a majority of, um, my addiction, but, um, mine was all drug fueled. I, I wasn't employable. I wasn't, um, I never went to the shelters. I didn't go to the soup kitchens. I, um, would always figure out some way of, of feeding myself or, or, um, getting somewhere, um. I don't want to say a lot of nights were spent sleeping in my car and stuff like that, but a lot of nights were on friends' couches, um, other addicts who who had homes. Um, would, friends in air quotes, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So, um, so uh, what I see at the shelters, and this is just my own personal opinion. So, um, because if you ask, like, if you go look at um, uh, any study, they're going to tell you that fifty percent of the homeless are mentally ill. And I just know from my own experience and what I see every single day is I'm going to say 99.9% of my clientele at the homeless shelter are mentally ill. Yeah. Um, and I can tell you from my own experience, um, uh, being homeless and not having a place to, to brush your teeth or to shower or to wake up to some nice clean clothes or, or uh, you know, in the dead of winter to a nice warm place to sleep in um there, there's got to be some form of mild depression going on if yeah, that's yeah. it there, there's got to be sure. something going on with you and so 
It depends on, I guess, what that study looks at. Is like, what do you consider mental health? But um, I know from my own experience, because I've suffered from depression and anxiety, that even in the mildest form of depression can, on some days, be debilitating. And so, um, so even if someone identifies at the shelters, I have mild depression. I, I honor that and respect that, and and because I know what it's like personally. And so, I'm I'm gonna say ninety nine point nine percent of our you know, folks living at the shelters are dealing with some sort of mental health depression, along with um, self medicating on some sort of drug. Yeah. So. Yeah, de- definitely. Um, my experience, mental health played a huge part in it. Um, and combine that with substances, I was definitely just on a, a roller coaster of life. Um, being able to even hold a job wasn't really in it for me. Like every three or four months, I, I would have a major drop down. Um, and that kind of preluded to me getting on the streets. Um, and I'm very I, I closed off from the world when, when I was on the streets. I didn't want to be around anybody. I didn't want to help. Um, the only time I really talked to somebody is if they had drugs that I wanted. And... Other than that, it's being alone. So now, as I'm working with the the people that we have down at the shelter, I see that. I, I, I see a lot of people just struggling. They're either just at a point in their life where they're just, it's a situational thing. Maybe they're on a fixed income. But then also those that I can relate to that have some mental illness going on, some stuff that's not been addressed that's been holding them back from getting to where they want to be. You know, um, I think it's just kind of, every person that goes through there is having their own battle and when you're on the streets like pat was saying it's it, there's going to be mental illness so if, if you're on the streets for any period of time trauma and mental illness are, are just part of that yeah. Yeah. well i mean in the shelters it's not it's not an ideal situation for most people uh, uh, just uh, an example in the men's shelter in the main dorm i have 150 people in a, a dorm that should probably be holding max capacity maybe 100 and um and you have a small little uh, locker that, that's probably smaller than your high school locker. Mm. And um, so, uh, and the, you know, we do our best. The gospel mission helps us uh, helps us serve meals at night. Um, but it's just, uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I would love to be able to come in here one day and say that I lost my job because we don't have any more clientele. I do, too. Try to therapize myself out of work. I mean, it would be great if we were all walking around in a community that was totally healthy and we didn't have to see, you know, couples fighting in the grocery line or, you know, mm-hmm. kids getting smacked at, <laughs> by oh, sticking yeah. their fingers in the bins or kids getting bullied on the playground. You know, I mean, yeah. if we can eliminate all that, I mean, that's why we have podcasts, right? So we can, you know, people don't have to go seek out formalized resources. They can download this stuff right into their earbuds yeah. if they want to, to, to stay healthy. Um, what I was going to ask is, uh, so like, it's a little bit controversial, I suppose, but there's, you know, there's articles out there and uh, that talk about, um, how in vogue homelessness has become and how governments are purposely, you know, subsidizing it. And, and there's, you know, nefarious bad actors who make money off of homelessness. And um, I'm just wondering what your guys' perspective is because all this sounds like these people who are struggling in this way aren't choosing it. And yet there's some, some narratives out there. It's like, well, people get offered help all the time and they reject it. So that sounds like they're choosing to be homeless. And then there's trendy homelessness like we see covered in, uh, maybe you know the Berkeleys and Portlands of the world, or uh, purpose purposely college students will travel there to like take advantage of whatever systems in place. What? How much of that occurs ver- versus how much of it's just sensationalized uh, outliers? Yeah. So my once again, my opinion is I think you have all of that. Mm. Uh, I, I, 
I, I de definitely come across the individual that we've offered him every resource and uh, known to mankind, and they just don't want the help. Mm -hmm. They just don't want it. Um, Explain that. How's that? How's that? That doesn't seem logical. I mean, you're living in misery, and you don't want to get out. That, of it. That some people don't see living along the river in a nice tent, uh, waterfront property, <laughs> no bills, no. Uh, yeah. You know, we do a lot. I, I can tell you this about our community. Um, it's, that's what I know best. Is um, is we do a lot, a lot. We throw a lot of resources at helping um, uh, our homeless population. Not just that. I can tell you, just at the shelter alone, our budget's three point six million dollars. That's just the shelter alone. That's a lot of resources. That's not to mention uh, what what Hopes throws at it, um, what Catholic Charities throws at it, um, and every other organization. The, the Eddie House. Um, I, I can't even imagine if you were to tally all that up. And I'm not saying it's all about money. It's also about all the individuals that are currently working in this field. Mm -hmm. You know, I have 75 alone just at the shelters. Um, and then the, um, the county has a, a you know, their, um, what's it called now? Um, they have their whole division of mm -hmm. um, human services, yeah. um, which is enormous. And that's all geared towards helping other people and helping the, our, our struggling individuals in our community. So I think um, as far as, as us as, as a community, we do an amazing, amazing job at, uh, trying to, to combat this. Um, can we do better? We can always do better because obviously we still have people living on the streets. Um, so um, as far as people not wanting... I don't know. There's just there's a host of reasons you'd have to really dig into someone's life. A lot of a lot of this stuff is generational too. It's what they've been taught their whole lives. Um, one thing I do want to talk about is childhood trauma because it's one of the, my biggest uh, eye openers at the shelter from being there five years. Is I no longer see childhood trauma. Uh, I would say plays a role in probably eighty percent of most of the cases at, at the shelters. And what I hear on a daily basis, the stories I hear. Um, or they'd make your skin crawl. And a lot of times you'll see, I don't see the 52-year-old, big, ugly, unshaven, dirty man. I still see a, a, a three-year-old kid that was raped and molested. Yep. And um, and that's who we need to get. And this is my just my own way of thinking. Did you have this 52-year-old man that that's suffering on the street from mental health? Well, you started off at three-year-old little Johnny who got raped and molested at three years old, and then... He's, little Johnny creates another um, identity, and now he's known as you know Johnny and Bob. And little Bob gets raped and molested again at five years old, and that just continues throughout his whole life. And so, in order to fix, you know, the the big ugly homeless guy, we got to get all the way back down to little Johnny at three years old. Couldn't agree more. And um, and that's yeah. a, and that's what I mean. Like the the work that you do, and the work that ever uh, all the other counselors and psychiatrists and doctors and psychologists and just the the person behind the counter at the homeless shelter. It's a friggin rough job it is not easy and the and the success rate I, I don't know you probably know that more than i do but um you know our job at the shelters the house people we do really really good at that as far as dealing with mental health issues and other things like that we, you know that's not something we measure down there yeah it's really tough because you got to um p poke through the the um the, the the surface the veneer i guess of the the defensiveness of you know these people have uh, walked so long down a path of darkness that they've now created almost an identity of mm -hmm. um hopelessness and um and a lot of and it's not helped any by a narrative that's uh fed through modern psychotherapy circles that say um you know schizophrenia can't be fixed it's like well i have some personal testimony that says it can yeah. um and you guys are personal testimony Test, testaments to uh, you know addiction being fixed, and 
when we try to speak that life into people, if we don't get an open rejection to it, um, there's a little sliver of, of hope through, you know, in the crack through which we can crawl that allows us in to, to go into their histories and to help them process that and bring it out. The problem is it's very hard work yeah. as Austin shared. It's, it's, it's the hardest it's thing. Exhausting. It, it, and it is, it's tiring. And, because it's so hard, you need a, a sufficient set of resources behind you to, to return to at home so that you can decompress, process, journal without the threats of weather, <laughs> um, food not being available, violence if you're not in a good area. So we're talking back, you know, back to Maslow's hierarchy here. When you're working on mental uh, distress or mental illness, that's like at the esteem level, which is like fourth in line on the hierarchy. Below that, you got in order, you know, from the ground up, basic needs, air, water, food. Uh, and then right above that is safety and security. That's your shelter. And then above that, love and belonging. And then we can work on you. And so we're asking folks who are barely scraping by, you know, no socks, uh, cold weather, uh, to, to try to do deep psychotherapy. It's like, well, no, of course it's not going to work. Yeah. Um, what was up with your watch there? I don't know if anybody could no hear idea. that. But it sounded like it you're playing. It was starting like, to go crazy. It was like, <laughs> like you had a, like a Casio calculator watch from the 80s or something. Like you're doing, doing fractions on that thing? I'm over here fidgeting yeah. with it. And I, I, I don't, it's <laughs> counting down. I hope it doesn't blow up. That would be terrible. So you, you said something that's the last little uh, thing that you said something about um, we were fixed <laughs> so do you see uh, addiction as being a disease no no um i and, and i want to make sure that we um we have language no i appreciate it because i i my favorite word in in counseling is intentionality so if you if you know why you do what you do you can speak and act with greater purpose and intent and you get better control over your, what you do and um so i think language matters i'm also a language guy and i don't want to I don't want to necessarily draw the line between um, cure and disease model. I think yeah. cure can take all sorts of forms. Um, disease model is is one form, and and that's that's one lens through which you can look at it. And that actually even varies from person to person. So um, some people think that it's it's in your blood, it's genetic, and uh, we don't we don't have a lot of information to support that theory. There's some ideas out there that say there's genetic predispositions that, if triggered by environmental factors, can lead to a, a series of events that you know move one way or another. Um, but then other people say the disease model is something you can catch, which is like like it's some like psychological chicken pox that descends from the ether. It's like my depression is back again. It's like no, oh, or you're fixating on like sad things. Um, and uh, and so I don't I don't want to say that there's like some magic wand or a bean or a yeah. pill that you can take, but the idea is that these things are overcomable. And where I get that idea, and I thank you for asking me because I never really get to opine in this format. I do it in supervision all the time when I'm training people, but um, I'm glad to share this. So my philosophy is rooted in the the studies and the writings of Carl Jung. Carl Jung was a very very spiritually oriented person and his model of this the human psyche or as we might now know it the mind or the soul literally translated from the greek psyche means soul because psyche was the goddess of the human soul um there's a divine component to each human psyche and so if you believe in the divine if you believe in the in the god component uh, and you believe that the divine is is um, unlimited in its capacity we are also therefore unlimited in our capacity which means that if you believe in that model Nobody's born broken. You can be born with broken parts. 
of your body, but mm-hmm. but no broken souls. Therefore, if you're bro- if you're born pure, clean, you know, perfect into I don't want to say perfect because there's a lot of uh, mm-hmm. discussion about pre-existing sin and brokenness and all that stuff and and introjected beliefs. But if you're born mostly whole and then you get broken along the way, we should be able to return you to some sort of whole and yeah. functional. So when I say fix or cured, or that, yeah. that's what I'm talking about, is that there's a, there's a light at the end of the metaphorical tunnel that says you're, you're going to be okay as long as you work hard on recovering whatever you're, you're struggling with, whether it's, um, and I don't like the bifurcation of mental health or substance abuse. I mean, in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders that we use to, in our profession, the DSM has substance abuse as one of the mental disorders. So it, there's a little bit of a weird uh, juxtaposition where we say, well, it's, it's mental health or it's substance abuse. Like I've never, I have yet to meet someone who has a standalone substance abuse problem. <laughs> no, yet. I, it yeah. just hasn't happened yet. Uh, show, show me that person. And I'll show you somebody who's not yet uncovered uh, another layer. Yeah, so um, a, that's what I'm saying. Part of that is like when, when this, the minute I quit doing drugs, I saw my mental health actually, mm-hmm. Improve. Improve. So sure. I, absolutely, I believe. Yeah, there's a, there's a chicken and egg battle there. I mean, yeah. like, do you, do you get pushed into doing drugs at age 13 because you're getting bullied and that, you know, is like depressing you so you reach the drugs to get out or do you reach the drugs to try to be cool because you're not, like, uh, who cares? Yeah. Like, for me, it's it really is a who cares. Like, where are you yeah. now and where do you want to be? Yeah. Later, we can have a hair-splitting debate about the origins of it, but right now you're struggling, you're suffering, you're miserable. Do you, do you, do you really want to stay struggling and suffering and miserable or do you want to like get somewhere else let's work on that and um, later when you're in a healthier spot we can unravel all the philosophical um, ins and outs of yeah. how it came to be it's funny because families ask me come meet with my kids and uh, tell me what's wrong with them and stuff I'm like yeah. I'm like well, until we get rid of the drugs and figure yeah, out is that totally. causing the mental health totally. or are they just really messed up there's, there's a thing <laughs> these days uh, for the listening audience because you guys I'm sure are aware of it there's a, there's a philosophy that says housing first and housing is seen as one of those basic needs and without a house it's really hard to like put anything else mm-hmm. into place which is true I mean you need a home address to mail your check to if you want a job for yeah. example um, so there's some some merit to that a lot of resources but for me uh, and a lot of us in the in the clinical community what you just touched on is, is primary got to get rid of the substances so we know who you are and sometimes Absolutely. that means uh, psychotropic medication from I, I don't know how many kids that I've worked with slash staffed or supervised where they've just been passed from medication to medication to medication and they get to age 15 or 16 and they're so fouled up on on medications that they don't know who they are yeah. and I'm like I, like I'm not an MD and I need to like trot that out there as a qualifier and I'll say that being the case go back to your doctor and check but I'm advocating that you go get titrated off these things. Yeah. I'll keep working with you and I'll keep talking to you. But I don't. if you don't know who you are because you've been medicated since yeah. nine and you went through all this developmental period under the influence of psychotropic prescription medication, yeah. I don't know that we're going to get a, a whole lot of progress out of talk therapy. So let's let's get a clean baseline of who you are first, Absolutely. absent the Zoloft and the and the and the lithium and the you know whatever else you're on. Um and then we'll start moving forward and it's amazing the response to the families is like, thank God we've never heard anybody talk like that before. Yeah. We've well, sort of known it but we didn't want to argue with the doctor, right? That's what I had to do, but I didn't start getting all those medications until I was twenty one, twenty two, but I I got a ridiculous amount of medications. Um and then I, once I completely stopped everything like um, my mental health went way up. Yeah. 
Sure. And, I mean, it, it, it changed my life. Now I, I won't take anything. And it's still, like, I'd still have doctors, well, why don't you take this? No, I'm good. Well, and, and, and if you think back, I mean, the, the history of pharmacology is pretty young in the in the pantheon of human existence. Um, we've, we've only been prescribing people drugs to help them in the last 100 years or less. And and it's interesting to me, and I'm bird walk this a little bit, um, to, to watch as we get more precise with the levers that we flip in the brain. And it's all theory anyway. There's no real like practical use yet. It's Because every drug will do something different to a different person. We only have theoretical application. But as we get more precise with the, with the, the pharmaceuticals that we use and the levers that we flip in the brain, um, the less precise we get with how we treat it, if that makes sense. So we're, we're throwing drugs at people saying this, this will help alleviate your symptoms and maybe your problem. Um, but I'd rather get more precise as to the origins of the problem, which sounds counterintuitive to what I just said earlier. But as a family systems trained person, I can reasonably say that most of what you're dealing with present day arose somewhere in your past and you failed to deal with it. You shoved it down, you bottled it, whatever. Um, and I would rather not be flipping levers in the organ that is the brain and be wrestling with bigger psychological, emotional issues from your past or the way that you perceive the world or whatever lens you're using to view it um, because that helps to advance healing more rapidly and at a deeper level than just symptom treatment. I say frequently that I'm not about symptom resolution, I'm about problem resolution. And for me, the way that I view most people walking into the clinical office, they're struggling with a symptom. The symptom just has a name that I diagnose. It has a code that goes off to insurance for billing. But if we alleviate your anxiety, and we don't alleviate where your anxiety originated, something else takes its place. Depression steps in. We alleviate your depression, and alcoholism steps in. And we alleviate your alcohol and something else. Yeah, so we're playing therapeutic whack-a-mole. And what we need to do is like get you to tolerate emotion. Or we need to get you to reconcile those broken relationships. Or you know, we need to get you anchored to a sense of self. You know, Something much, much more macro, but yet much deeper and more, more precise than just the Hey, what what uh, what drug can we flip your way to get you to focus in school? Um, so that's my soapbox, but it seems to work. So back to the politics and policy because I want to I want to wrap this up. We're a little over an hour now, and as fascinating as it is, I'm sure the listening audience. I want to ask one question, and it's going to branch off into a myriad solutions. I'm sure, but what's this? What's the solution as you guys see it? Magic wand time. We've heard about there's lots of resources available. There's lots of resources being spent. But how do we fix homelessness? Pregnant pause. <laughs> yeah, um, how do you fix So when I first took over the shelters, I was like, I'm going to end homelessness in Reno. And um, I don't, don't want to be Debbie Downer, but we're not going to. There's always going to be homelessness in our, in our society. Um, there's people, like we said earlier, they just choose. That's the way they want to live. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've put people in houses... Uh, through our restart program and um, within months they're back at the shelter um, and some of that may be due to maybe someone that has been in prison their whole life that's been confined to walls and they're just not willing to live in a it's it's too uh, traumatic to them to experience that um, there seems this, to be a, a solution there though too right we i mean we just help them recover and learn to work in that capacity right? and that means more so, people yeah. like me probably 
So, well, I mean, that, well, there you just nailed it right there is we don't have enough. Provider shortage. Uh, yeah, we don't. We need more providers. We need our, our case managers. Our, 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 my one case manager in the women's shelter, her caseload's 50 people. Uh, my case manager, not that everybody in our overflow shelter wants case management because it's optional, but if um, but she's pushing a hundred uh, caseload of a hundred people. My case managers in the the, the men's shelter. Um, I just hired a new men uh, a new case manager is pushing forty one people. So I mean, really, if you want to start making some headway, we need more people like you and more case managers to start um, uh, advocating and helping individuals with uh, the issues that are face, facing them. So absolutely, I, you can take that person that's been in prison and, and heal them or <clears throat> get them into a place where they're actually in. Because like you talk about the housing first model, and um, I'm not a, in our community because of the lack of case management. You know, it may work in Washington where you have the Gates Foundation that, that's, um, that's funding the whole thing, and you can have an, an abundance of case managers and a caseload's maybe 20 people, um, but not here in Reno, Nevada. It just doesn't work. I think one of the worst decisions that was ever made in, in, a, in U.S. history was back in the 80s when Reagan <clears throat> closed all the mental health institutions, yeah. and um, I think that makes him one of the worst presidents ever. One thinks he's so wonderful that we had a booming economy, but... But he, he, he took all the uh, the patients that, that needed help and shoved them out into the streets and left it up to the cities and the municipalities to take care of for him, and we don't have the money to. Yeah, we're, we're really still struggling with that, especially if you go up to NAMS uh, or SNAMS down in Vegas. Uh, yeah. the, the acronym Northern Nevada Adult Mental Health Services or Southern Nevada Adult Mental Health Services, it's the state of Nevada's um, hospital system basically for the, for the mentally ill. Um, but we, we can't keep people in hospitals in no. perpetuity. It's, or even for long periods of time anymore because it's against the law. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, and, and so I, I see that every day. And, and if you go back and look at what happened when all those were closed, you'll see that violent crime, homelessness, uh, domestic violence, drug and alcohol addiction all skyrocketed mm-hmm. during that period of time. So, I mean, that's another solution. I think that, and one of the, and I don't know this for sure, but one of the reasons they say that they shut all these down was um, was uh, because they're inhumane. Well, we should have fixed them. Yeah, make it humane. Don't <laughs> yeah, don't close don't them. Close them. That'd be like closing down all the prisons in the state of Nevada and saying you guys have fun. Yeah. I mean, what's that going to do for our society? Um, what's uh, I, I guess I'm trying to get a handle on. Is it getting worse? We hear it's worse. I don't I know. So. I don't know what worse means. We'll know after January 31st once we do the point in time count. But I, I I think it does. I can tell you when I first took over the shelters. Uh, five years ago, we, we didn't need a 365-day-a-year overflow shelter. Um, we didn't need a, a – we have a tent in our parking lot that holds 60 additional beds that is open uh, for four months out of the year. Um, I never saw 600 people a night. Um, is that just a function of population growth, or is it disproportionate to that? Um, yeah, I, I, some of, I, It's a little bit of everything. I, I think, you know – I talked to a gentleman the other night, and I said, "What are you doing here?" He's like, "Well, why wouldn't I be here? I get a I get a government check for seven hundred bucks a month. I get free room and board. I get free washer and dryers. I get free food." He's like, "You guys take really good care of us." So part <laughs> so, of so part of it is, uh, you know, if we're getting in the chicken or egg thing, like you know, does does a booming economy with a rising housing costs and low unemployment rate yield more homelessness, or does resources thrown at homelessness <laughs> beget yeah. taking advantage of homeless resources. I, I, like I said, I think it's a little <laughs> bit of everything. I mean, obviously a booming economy isn't really good for the person that struggles and mm-hmm. is, is trying to make rent to 
$1,300 for a one bedroom, uh, making 12 bucks an hour. You stepped forward like you were going to say something. No, I was just, just leaning forward. Just, oh. I was, yeah, I was really interested in what you guys saying. Um, I, do, I do have to get you okay. soon. So. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you both. I appreciate it. Can we um, do it again? This is kind of fun. I kind of like this. I like it I have is. my own radio show with yeah. Eddie. And this is like, yeah, yeah, this yeah. Kind of, I like this. What was yours called? Uh, Recovery Brothers with Grant Denton. Nice. <laughs> yeah, mine was called Mental Matters, uh, <laughs> no, just with me. Yeah. Uh, and then I had regular people on as guests uh, and broadcast <laughs> all you know six people that were listening in the greater uh, 90 mile radius of the <laughs> broadcast. Um, you mentioned Grant Denton earlier, Austin. Um, is he working with you guys, or is he doing? What does he do for? He's, he's now he's the operations manager for the Downtown Reno Partnership, so okay. the ambassador program. So he oversees all the ambassadors. Okay. And and um, and I haven't met Grant, but I know that he was on the Reno Dads podcast. Uh, so if you're listening, you can listen to Reno. Go to RenoDads.com, and you can, if you're a dad listening to this, you get lots of Reno Dads resources. But they may be applicable in your community, wherever you are. Uh, and you know, I also mentioned Daniel Fred at the outset. Daniel's a, a friend from a long, long time ago, and he teaches the uh, CASAT program up at UNR. It's the Center for Application of Substance Abuse Technologies is that uh, CASAT acronym. And Daniel's also in recovery. And he's very proud about it. And um, he's got some really cool stories still too. So um, thank you both for coming. Thanks for carving out time. Uh, I think this is really beneficial. At least I hope, I always hope everything we do is beneficial. I think it's cool because I think whatever comes out of my mouth is cool. Otherwise, I wouldn't say it. <laughs> um, on behalf of the uh, Noggin Notes team and the Zephyr Wellness family, I wish you all great mental wellness. Bye.